Hi out there, I'm Pat Pauley, and I'd like to welcome you to my show, Artbeat Northwest. Each week, we interview someone prominent in the local art scene, and this week, we're talking with James Clark of Clark & Clark Art and Artifacts on Mercer Island. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you, Pat. Great to be here. Great to have you here. Now, Jim is really an expert in his field. He has a Ph.D. in cultural anthropology, and he's done research in many countries of the world and has so many years of experience teaching and procuring cultural art all over the world. And I'm so happy to have him here. But before we get started with the interview, I want to encourage you to fill out the 2018 KKNW Listener Survey and how you do this. You log on to 1150kknw.com. That's 1150kknw.com. And fill out the survey to make the station better tailored to your needs. And also, when you fill out the survey, you're automatically entered for a chance to win a round-trip passage to Victoria on the Victoria Clipper, plus a $100 certificate to Schwartz Brothers Restaurants. And that's just a bonus. The main thing we want is your opinion on how to improve the station. One lucky person's name will be drawn on November 6th. So log on today at kknw1150.com for a chance to win and to give your feedback on programs at KKNW. And thanks for listening to Artbeat Northwest. We'll be back shortly talking with James Clark of Clark & Clark Art and artifacts on Mercer Island. Is art making too messy for your house? Then head on over to the Kirkland Art Center and take a class with a professional art teacher. At Kirkland Art Center, you or your child can experiment or refine artistic skills that can last a lifetime. In our art studios and classes, you can paint, cut, build, draw, print, glue, and splatter to your heart's content. We're located in the heart of Kirkland on Market Street in the historic Peter Kirk Building. Learn more about the classes we offer and register online at kirklandartcenter.org. Make us part of your daily routine. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Artbeat Northwest. We're here talking with James Clark about Clark & Clark Art and Artifacts, his gallery on Mercer Island. And, you know, a lot of people don't know about your gallery. So people come there. One thing is they're very warm, friendly people, and they have a lot of good information, in-depth information. But what would they find in your gallery, Jim? Pat, we have tried to juxtapose contemporary art against traditional, sometimes called tribal art, community art, and uh, cultural art, and to show people through the displays that we have in the gallery that a contemporary painting and a piece of art crafted in the 19th century or in the case right now in the gallery of 15th century or 3rd century BC art all works together because the motivation behind creating art is not wasn't different uh, in the 3rd century BCE than it is today. The, uh, the need for artistic expression, the artist to express themselves in ways that are unique and to evoke emotion remains constant. So we represent painters, particularly painters from the Pacific Northwest, uh, which we show at regular intervals of about six to eight weeks. 
and we show them in ways that uh, really sh- illustrates the compatibility between ancient and, uh, and perhaps even 20th century cultural art, the art of Africa, the art of Indonesia, the art of New Guinea, the art of the Native Americas, in ways that people can often see just that it really is just one thing. It's humans expressing themselves in these wonderful ways that evoke emotion. And when you go into their gallery, you will see this contemporary art interspersed with all of this, what they call cultural art, which used to be called tribal art of years ago, or some of it's current, you know, and it works perfectly, doesn't it? It, it really, really does. does. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing because I, I think they're both, like you said, expressions of themselves. And we're going to talk more about uh, why people do art. But I want to find out some other things for, uh, for the listeners. Like, you know, you have so many uh, different uh, artifacts in your gallery. How do you find these? Well, I've had the good fortune, uh, both uh, through the auspices of the university that I was part of, and then finally uh, through the auspices of several uh, large uh, uh, corporate art environments that I worked for, to travel the world, uh, to spend time in these communities, uh, to understand what their artistic priorities were, and to try to choose art that best reflected, in my mind, Uh, what they were expressing, things that I thought were, had enough merit. And certainly I always look at things like, would I want this in my house? Uh, Would I put this in my, uh, in my den? Or would I have it in my office? And how would it work with the art which we've already collected? And surprisingly enough, whether I'm standing in a village with no electricity and no running water and no telephone, and no internet, and surprisingly, no cell phones. No cell phones. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, and the art that I can look at in that community re- can resonate with me, and I would see it fitting in your house or in the house of people who walk into the gallery every day and in perfect uh, juxtaposition with the other art that they've already collected. Because after all, it's all created by human beings. And basically, we're all one thing. Our, the reason why we create art is fundamental to Homo sapien. It isn't unique to any particular culture. So <laughs> you go in person to many of these areas to oh, yeah. collect the art. Right. And then, you know, I, my other question was, well, how do you authenticate the art? But I guess you are the expert who does the authentication, right? <laughs> Well, of course, when you're standing in a village that you had to walk for a, a day, with, there's no road leading to it, and you had to walk for a day through the jungle to get to the village, and you're the only people in the village who aren't members of the community, the chances of them, of them trying to pawn off a, uh, an expensive fake on me is not very high. Oh, <laughs> in most cases, they look at me and say, why do you want this? Oh, interesting. Now, I have to ask you, you must have a large collection of your own that you just cannot part with, though. Absolutely. And uh, did you begin with this by just starting to collect on your own and then decide later that, oh, perhaps I should have a gallery? Or how did that work? You've been a 
gallerist for what, over 30 years? Uh, 35 years. 35 years. But how did that work? Well, I, I always advise people when they come into the gallery and they say to me, how do I know what to buy? <clears throat> and I say to them, uh, you know, only buy a piece of art that speaks to you. If when you look at it, it resonates somewhere in your being, then that's the piece of art you should be looking at. Don't buy it because of a name. Don't buy it because it matches your sofa. Only <laughs> buy it because it resonates with you. And if you're undecided, the best way to test that is go home. And when you wake up tomorrow, if it's one of the first things you think about, then you should come back and buy it. <laughs> but if tomorrow it doesn't resonate, speak to it all, then don't buy it. Yeah. Well, then these items actually have resonated to, with two people because they've resonated with you because you wouldn't have purchased these items unless they resonated with you, right? Exactly. exactly. So, so what countries have you found the most interesting art? Well, I, to tell you the truth, I find it all interesting. Uh, it usually is... Um, it's usually the people that make the difference uh, because every piece of art in the gallery, and, and I would mention that my wife and business partner has traveled with me to many of these places, and we share many, many fun stories with each other when we'll, we'll go to our warehouse and look at a piece of art and we'll say, remember when? <laughs> and, uh, but the fact of the, the face and the place and the art kind of enriches that whole uh, art presence for us. And unfortunately, we're not able to share that other than just through our enthusiastic dialogue about the piece. We're always happy to tell people how we found it, where we found it. Uh, in many cases, we can tell them who we acquired it from. Uh, in terms of personal experience, I, uh, I, uh, because I uh, wrote my uh, dissertation on the evolution of Buddhist art in northern China, I spent a, quite a lot of time in China, and uh, this was really in the early days, not long after the Cultural Revolution, when China was a different China than it is today. And it was an intriguing experience. The, uh, uh, I had the opportunity to, be, to work in and be in villages, uh, obviously with the supervision of the People's Republic, uh, to be in a village, again, with no electricity and no running water. Uh, in one case, the people lived in caves, uh, and wow. they re refused to look me in the eye because I had blue eyes and I was a foot taller than everybody in the village, and so they were convinced I was a devil. <laughs> and so there's one extreme, and the other extreme is just generally speaking the warmth and generosity that Jenny and I have experienced from many of these places where people virtually have nothing by comparison with what, with what we take for granted. You know that they have very little, and yet they're anxious to invite you into their home, to feed you, to have tea with you, to anything, to get you to come and sit down, spend time with you. Their sense of civility and hospitality is just warm and generous in a way that I think at one time the United States was. And, uh, but it's just such a treat to experience that. And it embellishes the art experience. Finding the art is embellished because of those memories. 
And now you've spent a lot of time, you said, in uh, East Africa, too. Well, sometime. Uh, obviously, with my concentration on Buddhist art, uh, Buddha, as many people know, was actually not Chinese, although he's most frequently depicted in art as Chinese. Buddha was Indian. And uh, and and in the Indians, uh, the Indian community, uh, one of the oldest on the planet, had a huge effect on uh, proselytizing Southeast Asia. And Southeast Asia is the very earliest place I worked with the university because I couldn't go into China. Uh, I was prohibited by federal law to go to China, and the relationship between the United States government and the Chinese wasn't that great. So I worked in Southeast Asia, and we studied the migratory southern Chinese who came across the border into Thailand Uh and the other Southeast Asian cultures. But during that time, I also became aware that Southeast Asia had first really been first animistic, obviously, and then secondly, they became Hindus because the Indians were trading down through Southeast Asia all the way out into Indonesia, and when the traders move, with them comes the priests. Interesting. And that was pretty universal, and it was whether it was the Indians or the Dutch or the Spanish or the English, uh, the proselytizing part of trade was going on everywhere. Now, did that uh, religious part of trade, did that Mm. affect the art at that time? Very much so. Uh, One of the most profound experiences in terms of Buddhist art is uh, appears very close to really a monumental piece of architecture in, in southern Java uh, that is a fine example of the kind of Hindu art you see in southern India and in like Angkor Wat. Uh, and it is an example of the influence that uh, that culture had uh, on not just people's religion, but on their perception of what art was and how it could be expressed. And and then, of course, after uh, after the Hindus, uh, or, or actually coexisting with the Hindus, Buddha arrives on the scene, and now India becomes enchanted with Buddhism. But most people don't know that Buddhism didn't become a national religion in India, and it didn't last for very long. It really became an, uh, a religion of the Asian communities. It moved northward up into uh, the Himalayas, uh, Tibet, northern China, across the uh, Mongolian area to Korea, all the way down China to Japan. And then, of course, pesky trade converts all of Southeast Asia to Buddhism all the way over to Indonesia. And... Uh, uh, and then to, to tell you just how quixotic that is, the uh, Islam shows up on the scene. And so the Islamic uh, warriors that come down, the horse warriors that come down, the Mongolians come down into China and and move into these other cultures. They affect northern India, and the Mogul part of the uh, Indian culture becomes dominant. And so again, the trade from India, primarily, is now Islamic. The people who are trading are taking Islamic uh, uh, teachers with them who are proselytizing along the way. Unfortunately, the effect is always the same. 
by the time it reaches India and many of the Indian kings are converted to Islam, uh, a resulting war breaks out amongst the islands called the Mahajapit Wars in the 15th century that pretty much annihilates much of the old uh, Hindu and Buddhist tradition and replaces it with Islam. And with the only real surviving element of, uh, of the Hindu-Buddhist tradition being on the island of Bali. But the art reflects all of that. <laughs> Interesting. And, and that's our, actually, that's our historical record of all of these happenings, yes, right? Exactly. Is the art. <clears throat> it is. That is amazing. Well, it is already time for a break. We've been here talking with James Clark uh, of Clark & Clark Art and Artifacts about uh, art in the world and, of course, art in their own gallery on Mercer Island. We'll be right back with more on Artbeat Northwest. From new exhibitions to community events, Bellevue Arts Museum is always new, always different, and always exciting. Through March 24th, see Dylan Newworth. Omnia. Newworth is a contemporary artist working with light, space, and interactive technologies. The exhibition traces a metaphorical life cycle from the cosmic to the personal, including work in video, performance, sculpture, and neon. The museum's fifth biennial, BAM Biennial 2018, BAM Glass-tastic, will be on view from November 9th through April 14th. This juried exhibition showcases the best work in glass from 48 established and emerging Northwest artists, craftspeople, and designers. For more information, visit BellevueArts.org. Wherever you go, Alternative Talk 1150 is here for you. Welcome back to Artbeat Northwest. We're here talking with James Clark about Clark & Clark art and artifacts and, of course, about the art world and art history. And, Jim, I do want to ask you, um, so we don't leave it out, Talk. let's talk a little bit more about the contemporary art that you're showing right now in your gallery. Great. How do you select artists to show? You have some wonderful contemporary artists and uh, so amazing um, what do you have on right now? Well, we're showing uh, three women artists, all residents of the uh, Northwest, actually two of them from Bellevue and one from Columbia City area. And each is unique in their own way. And Jenny and I have always felt that the responsibility of a gallerist is to, uh, when you're involved with a group show in particular, to create a com compatibility that it really enhances the art experience for the viewer. Uh, an example would be uh, two of the people that we're showing, both are specialists in the use of ink in creating art. Uh, Karen Diedrichsen uh, works really with a more traditional sumi-e uh, ink technique. and But yet her works are not traditional, they're very no, contemporary. Exactly, and the same But thing. that goes with uh, a lot of your Asian yes. uh, artifacts. And, and Chris Baumgartner uh, also is uh, very much involved with the use of ink as an enhancement to her composed work. And she use, uses uh, what is often called composition uh, or composed work and uh, applies uh, materials, uh, paper and fabric, and the use of ink to create a really in interesting textural uh, statement. And Chris uh, and uh, Karen Diedrichsen, on the other hand, uses the very traditional, like mulberry paper 
and uh, white, uh, uh, clear spaces, white backgrounds, and the black ink of the sumi to make a clear, uncluttered kind of statement. So people can really see both dimensions of the use of, of ink and how ink influences space and also how it, it works with all of the other things in our gallery. The third woman that really is outside that ring because she's a, really a new find for us, a lovely artist, uh, retired uh, chemical PhD, and has been painting for about 10 or 12 years, and works with a really unique uh, layered acrylic on canvas approach where she essentially buries her statement in the layering. And it really is only through looking and seeing that you really understand the statement. Without looking and seeing, you experience it, but you walk away incomplete. And so she's really kind of challenging the viewer to really pay attention to what she's saying. And we were showing her because her acrylic is kind of the fulcrum on which these two different statements of ink balance. And she also has uh, the poetry that inspired her paintings on, on the back. Isn't she the one? Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, she, it's on the front, but it's hard to see. Right. And then the, the full poem is on the back. Right. She, she was born in Taiwan and uh, the... Uh, and has uh, is uh, a, uh, a Taiwanese American has been for many many years, uh, but had discovered within herself the love of poetry and wanted to express poetry in a new and unique way, and so she chooses different poems. Not not all of them in any way Chinese. Uh, uh, right now we have one based on the theme of marriage from the Rubaiyat. Uh, and uh, the other is based on a 5th century Chinese poet poem uh, and a third on a, uh, on a 12th century Chinese poem. But the poetry is actually in the uh, work. But almost every day we have someone walk in and look at the largest of her paintings and say, is that a Jackson Pollock? <laughs> yeah, that's what I said when I walked in there. Because <laughs> right. it does look a lot like what uh, Jackson Pollock has done. Right. Yeah. And it's such fun. We, we so enjoy that. Actually, I like it better than Jackson Pollock. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's very good. Well, yes, you've got to go to their gallery and experience this. And not only do you see all these wonderful paintings and, of course, the artifacts that are just kind of all gelled together, but then you get to talk with uh, Jim and Jenny, who are very wonderful and very knowledgeable. Um, let's talk a little bit about why people do art. Why has art blossomed through the ages? Well, oddly enough, <clears throat> and I attended a recent symposium uh, in my field, and cultural anthropology today is uh, working to revise their self-image. Uh, in quantum physics, for instance, uh, when when a proposition is put forward, a new discovery is made and a proposition and a new theory is put forward, it's always accepted on a tentative basis. And an example would be that 
A few months ago, we discovered that the cave paintings uh, uh, that most people are familiar with, the ones found in northern Spain and south-central France, were always thought to be 20,000 years old. And that was based on dating by my community of people. And certainly technology has changed. But a few months ago, a British team was a British German team was able to identify the fact that the pigments used to create that, those paintings are 60,000 years old. Oh, amazing. And they're still here with us. <laughs> well, of course, they're, they're in caves, which many of them are very, very difficult to get to. They're not, you know, the kind of classic movie cave that's a big hole in the side of a mountain. You really climb down through holes and go through chasms that are very difficult in many cases to travel through. But it certainly does verify the fact that uh, early Homo sapien uh, had managed the use of fire because it's pitch dark in there. And all of this artwork had to be created under the auspices of torches. But and with, it has continued <clears throat> through the ages. You know, we're running out of time. <laughs> and do you want you do you have some famous last words here, Jim? Basically, in the years I've worked with art. I have come to discover that all people seem to be searching with art to discover one thing, and uh, th it's their humanity. And if there is one word I would share, it's one I deeply believe after experiencing, having the privilege of experiencing so many different cultures, and that is pretty much people are the same everywhere. You know, they want the things that we want, uh, and they love to sh share themselves, and they love to express their feelings, and most of those feelings are expressed through art. And so come to the gallery and have a, just taste a sample of what I'm talking about. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Jim, for coming in and talking to us. Now, why don't you give the website for your gallery? Oh, thank you. It's, uh, it's an old website. It's ethnoarts.com, E-T-H-N-O-A-R-T-S dot com. And you go there and you'll find out what's going on. And better yet, stop by. It's really nice there. But we are running out of time. Tune in at 5 p.m. every Tuesday for Artbeat Northwest. And next week, Preston Singletary, Plinkett Glass Artist, will be here. His stunning new exhibition at the Museum of Glass in Tacoma has just opened. I'm Pat Polly signing off on Alternative Talk 1150. Have a great creative week. <laughs>